Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Are you ready for some football? Well, Walters is, and Walters has all of the games for you all weekend long. Reservations are limited and can be found on all Walters social media channels. Walk-ins will also be available, but will be on a first-come, first-serve basis. So don't get left out and make your reservation today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the pitch. Swing a high drive right field. Gamble going back on this one to the warning track. Looking up, and there it goes. Opposite field, three-run homer for Lane Thomas. And the Nationals are in front 5-2 to two, as Thomas clubs his fourth home run of the season. The Nationals have four consecutive hits here in the fourth inning. A homer starts it, and a homer caps it. What a rally for the Nationals to take the lead back. You've got to think that the pairing of Corbin and Avila is going to continue. Second straight, solid start. The pitch. Swing and a miss. Struck him out on a slider. So Corbin gets his fourth strikeout. And if this is it for Patrick, he retires the last 13 batters with a double play, 14 outs. We go to the eighth, the score. The Nationals six, the Pirates two. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, September 13th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, the shame that would have been being swept at the lowly Pittsburgh Pirates was avoided on Sunday afternoon. A 6-2 Nationals win at the Pirates to avoid a three-game sweep to get to 59-84 and on the season. As the Nats inch ever so close to clinching, not losing 100 games this season. You know, at one point that was a conversation. I guess it still is kind of a conversation, but it seems like the Nats should be able to avoid losing 100 games in a year. You know, we say all the time the outcomes of these games don't matter, and they don't. But at some point, there is like a level of dignity that you want to maintain. Dare I say, Mark, being swept at the Pirates would have been below that line of dignity. You don't want to suffer a three-game sweep at a team that bad. Thankfully, the Nats did avoid that with this win on Sunday. Yeah, considering that that's the only team in baseball that has not swept anyone this year. Yeah, I would say that is something you want to avoid. And not to mention actually closing out a game that they led most of the way. Like, there was not really a lot of drama to this. Just a little bit in the eighth inning when Mason Thompson couldn't throw a strike, which we've come to expect from various Nationals relievers. But really, outside of that, this was about as nice and tidy of a victory as they've had in a while. And it's nice to see them take advantage of the run support that they've been getting. I couldn't believe this one when I looked it up before the game. Eight times in their previous 18 games, they'd scored five or more. We've talked about this lineup actually being pretty good. Eight times they'd scored five or more, and they were 0-8 in those games. And as somebody else pointed out to me on Twitter because they looked it up, that was the longest such losing streak in MLB history when scoring five or more runs. So, I mean, God, if they had done it again today, I mean, forget about it. So just nice to see them get the job done offensively and then just lock it down and not really make everybody sweat at the end. Yeah, it was a relatively drama-free game, and we've become accustomed to all of these games having some kind of drama. Like, as out of it as the Nats are, the games still have all these twists and turns, and there's all kinds of things that happen that you you know, you know definitely want to discuss and recap afterwards. But, you know, you had the 10-7 loss at the Pirates on Saturday night. You had the 4-3 walk-off loss at the Pirates on Friday night. The game before that was that 7-6-10 inning loss at Atlanta on Thursday night. I mean, it feels like every game there's something. This game, for once, it kind of felt like there was nothing. Although, you know, there were a few things to to chew on here, and chew we shall. So Patrick Corbin, for a second consecutive game, 
goes seven innings, and for a second consecutive game is at least passable. I mean, in this game, to me, was more than passable. He was actually, dare I say, good? Question mark? Two runs in seven innings? Old Corby. Huh? Who says he's shot? Who says he's done? Look, it's the Pirates. We know that. They stink. We know that. But Corbin has stunk for this season. So anytime he has success, you hold it and you squeeze it and you praise it and you hope that you get more of it. Corbin gives up just four hits, a triple and three singles. He issues just two walks. Only has four strikeouts. Okay, but he does throw strikes, 64 strikes versus 37 balls on 101 pitches. I mean, with this guy, you'll take anything. The fact that it's now back-to-back seven-inning outings, you know, the last one was that outing in which he goes three runs in seven innings, that 4-3 win over the Mets at Nationals Park on Labor Day afternoon. That was an odd game because the line was good, but he gave up 11 hits. He only had four strikeouts. So I don't know. I didn't think that was a great game, but it was better than what he had been. This is another game in which he's pretty good. And maybe, just maybe, he can do the thing we've all wanted him to do, and that is end the season on somewhat of a high note, or at least end the season not feeling so bad about this otherwise terrible season that he's had. Yeah, I do think it would make a a difference just from an emotional standpoint. If he can look back and say, okay, over my last five starts, I, you know, had a a three-point-something ERA or whatever that might be, and consistently giving them innings. I I think the innings matter to him more than anything. And especially, like we said, on a day like this where his teammates hand him a lead in the fourth, how many times have we seen him and other members of the staff immediately turn around and give it right back or start laboring and you know walk the first hitter the next inning? No. You know what he did? He didn't just pitch a shutdown inning in the bottom of the fourth when given the lead. He retired the next 12 batters he faced once given the lead, did not allow anybody else to reach base before he departed at the end of the seventh. That's what you do. That's understanding the situation, not messing around, go after them. You realize it's a lineup that's probably not going to hit you that hard. Don't help them at all. Throw strikes. He worked well on both sides of the plate. His fastball command was good. He finished strong. And, you know, I think there's a little bit to be taken here. It's a little glimmer of hope here in September on back-to-back outings. Now, it could all go down the toilet if he doesn't do this again, but it's at least a starting point for him to try to finish the season on a high note. He also got on base twice in this game in that Nationals four-run fourth. He had a two-out single, and in the top of the six, he drew a six-pitch walk. For all of the walks that Corbin and others on this Nationals pitching staff have issued this season, nice to see a pitcher himself draw a walk in a game, and Corbin does that on Sunday afternoon. His ERA for the season now is below six, so he did cross that plateau. We have that to celebrate. His ERA is down to 598 on the year. And I will say this about Patrick Corbin, and I know it's not saying much because he's haven't been quality innings and quality starts, but he does post. In a time in which we've seen so many Nationals pitchers deal with injury and guys just not be available for chunks of seasons, Patrick Corbin has made 28 starts now this season. He is by miles the Nationals leader in innings pitch. Now, obviously, if the Nats had not traded away Max Scherzer, Max would be on the top of that innings leaderboard. But there is something to be said for that, that the body is holding up. That's one of the things that makes those Ryan Zimmerman comments about Corbin being abused in October of 19 kind of funny. He hasn't had injury problems these last few years. Like, he is healthy. And so if he can figure it out, I think you actually are back to being in a pretty good place with him because he seems like a pretty durable guy. Like, if he's on, you can pretty much say, you know what, over a 162-game season, this guy's going to give you 175 to 200 innings. And obviously, that's not something that's so common anymore. Right. And that's why I think even if he doesn't ever regain that 2019 form, if he can at least stay healthy and make his 32 starts and give you, you know, like you said, 175, 180 innings and, you know, just maintain a respectable ERA, obviously not when you're bordering on six, but if you keep it more in the four range, like there's still value in that. No, it's not going to be worth $140 million that he's being paid. But on a team that has so many question marks, so many uncertainties, and ultimately a lot of young guys in their rotation, there is real value in having a pitcher who you just know is going to take the mound every fifth day and just give you a chance to win. We've set the bar really low. That's all they need Patrick Corbin to be. He doesn't have to lead this staff. You know, they're going to have others that hopefully can do that. But they just need him to be reliable, give him a chance to win and take the ball every fifth day. Now, he's done the part of taking the ball every fifth day. He has not done the part of giving them a chance to win enough, but maybe what we're seeing here has helped out. And I thought it was interesting, and who knows if this actually has anything to do with it or not, but both these back-to-back starts, you know who his catcher has been? Alex Avila. And for all the talk we had about why is he still around and 
what would they even be doing thinking about bringing Avila back? Look, I, again, it's two starts. I don't want to get too excited about any of this. But Avila has worked well with Corbin. And he's also performed at the plate himself. Here's the pitch. And this one is hit in the air deep to right field. Back on it, Gamble looking up at the wall. And Alex Avila has his first home run as a national. At least as of this moment, I think there has been value in having Alex Avila on the roster. Yeah, well, there is something appropriate to a pitcher who is pitched like a double-A pitcher benefiting from a catcher with the initials double-A. The Nats end up having having three different catchers over three games in this series. You don't see that often, although with all of the catchers the Nats have used this season, I feel like that has actually happened once or twice before this year. But why Avila and not Riley Adams? Was it because of that Avila... Corbin battery that Davey wanted to maintain for a second consecutive start? Well, remember, Adams caught Friday's game, and then Saturday when Ruiz got hurt, Adams had to come in and and finish out the game. It was, what, the last four innings, I think? So with a quick turnaround to a day game, I think maybe it was a feeling of, do we really want to push him to catch three in a row, essentially, especially with no off day Monday, when maybe they're not sure if Ruiz is going to be ready to come back. The good news on Ruiz, concussion protocol, everything was fine. Obviously, x-rays were negative. He's fine. He was still sore, and I think they were reluctant to even have to use him at all today, and they avoided that. But he might need a couple days still. So I could see how it would work out where if you're not sure about Ruiz and you say, okay, let's give Adams the day off, and then he comes back and catches Monday, well, that works out nicely to have Avila then catch Corbin. I don't know if it was purposely by design necessarily, but it worked out you know, fortuitously to do that. And Davey did say afterwards that he may not just automatically have Avila catch Corbin now. I mean, ultimately, these young guys are going to have to learn him and they're going to have to work well together because that's what's going to be next year. But for now, at least, if that has played any role at all in helping Corbin enjoy some good results the last two, then I think it's worth it. You know, it sets up a potential interesting dilemma. The Nationals have all these young catchers now, right, with Ruiz and Adams and Tres Barrera. What if it became true that like the only way for Corbin to be effective is with Avila, who with the Nationals bring back Avila next year, have a fourth catcher in the mix and do it all because of Corbin, all because of this contract and how bad Patrick has been the last two years. The Nats are like, if the only way to unlock Patrick Corbin, if the only way to solve the puzzle that is Patrick is to employ Alex Avila as Corbin's personal catcher, would that be worth it? Would the Nats do that? I'm going to say no, that they're not going to do that. (laughs) These other guys are going to have to figure out a way to get the most out of him because that alone, there are certain pitchers who are worth a personal catcher. I'm not sure that Patrick Corbin is, but, you know, who knows? Maybe they go into next year with the two young guys. Corbin really struggles and say Avila's playing somewhere else, and maybe they make a Doug Mirabelli trade for him, fly him in on a private jet, give him the police escort, get him there just in time for the game for Corbin starting, and the rest will be history after that. Well, whatever you have to do, you do. And look, let's give Alex Avila credit. He got the job done with both the bat and the arm on Sunday afternoon. He, in the Nationals' 4-1 fourth inning, blasts a two-out game-tying solo home run to right field to tie the game at two, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. The home run was Alex Avila's first home run of the season. And that was some shot. Uh, Alex got a lot of power behind that baseball. Really good piece of hitting. And then in the bottom of the eighth inning with runners on first and second, one out, and the Nats leading 6-2, Avila throws out Hoy Park in his attempt to advance to third off a Kyle Finnegan pitch, getting away from Alex Avila. Here's the pitch to Reynolds, fastball high off the glove of Avila, and the runners will move, throw to third, out at third! Avila to Sanchez, and Park is called out trying to go to third, on the ball that rolled to the right of Avila. We remember, and this feels like about five years ago now, but Jan Gomes and Alex Avila as a catching tandem were excellent earlier this season at throwing out runners trying to steal. Since Gomes got traded, since Alex became uh, Jose Akendo and played second base for that one game against the Dodgers and was on the IL for two months, we haven't seen the Nats have a lot of success throwing out base runners, but Alex can do that, and we saw him do that. That was a, a big spot and a really impressive defensive play by Avila in the later innings. It was. It was kind of a stupid running play by the Pirates, who were trailing by four runs, but good on Avila for being quick to the ball and sensing it and making a perfect throw to Adrian Sanchez, who got the good tag down. The guy has some value. Let's not, like, trash him as completely inept, anything like that. You know what else he's done very quietly is he has hit for power. He's got 14 hits this year, nine of them for extra bases. (laughs) So he doesn't hit a lot, but when he does, he's made them count. I remember early in the year, 
I think we may have talked about that or noticed that that when you know he was hitting under 200, but he actually draws walks. He's got a decent on base percentage, and his hits were meaningful. Between that and the work behind the plate, again, I think there's some value there. Enough value to say we're going to bring him back next year? No, because you actually have young catching depth for the first time ever. But for now, I'm okay with it on an expanded roster, keeping him as your third guy, and, and even finding some spots for him to play like they have done here. Well, one of the other subplots to tonight, uh, certainly catching Tim Wakefield, a guy who just arrived moments ago and acquired, reacquired by the Red Sox. This is Doug Marabelli coming over from San Diego in a plane earlier just moments ago, arriving at the ballpark, escorted by a, a state trooper and getting here into the ballpark. It was Jason Veritek that warmed up Tim Wakefield, but it'll be Doug Marabelli who catches him tonight in uniform as he arrives here at the park. <laughs> so... Out of the trooper's car and onto the field here at Fenway Park. How do you like that? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of legal headhunters working for you, and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a Rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, Give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine 
as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So, whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K. And the 1-2, swing and a line drive toward the middle, kind of squib thing, he cracked his bat, Escobar has it, fires to Bell at first, and that's it, a curly W's in the books. The Nationals take the finale as this three-game series and the final meeting of the year between the two teams. And they end up winning the season series four games to two as Kyle Finnegan closes it out into the final inning in two-thirds to preserve the win for Patrick Corbin. In terms of the Nats' bullpen on Sunday afternoon, this was another game in which the Nats had to spin the wheel of ineffectiveness, and it was Mason Thompson's turn to be ineffective. But because Patrick Corbin went seven innings, he didn't have to use three or more relievers in this game. That was good. Mason Thompson begins the bottom of the eighth inning, issues a leadoff six-pitch walk of Hoy Park, gives up a one-out full-count single to Kevin Newman, and then gets pulled from the game. You know, Mason Thompson, at times he looks very good, but at times he doesn't. This obviously was one of those times in which he did not look good. Thompson, over 16 and two-thirds major league innings for the Nationals, has a whip of 186. I mean, way too high for a reliever. But Kyle Finnegan comes in and, with a little help from Alex Avila, tosses one and two-thirds perfect innings for a five-out save. We've now seen this a few times from Kyle Finnegan, the ability to come into a game in the eighth inning and close out the game, you know, pitching more than the inning. It had been a few days since we had seen Kyle Finnegan pitch. I thought it was a little concerning when he wasn't used in that game the other night because you're like, geez, I mean, he is young and he had had the previous day off. So this was Friday night in which he wasn't used, but he had pitched a decent amount prior to Thursday. So I I could kind of understand things in that regard. But Finnegan comes into the game, looks sharp, and he now is nine for 11 on saves on the season, ERA at 261. The Nats closer showing some diversity here in terms of he's not just a guy who has to pitch one inning. He can give you more than that. Yeah, and the best part of this one, no drama at all. It helped. He came into a jam that was created by Thompson. Avila helped out getting the first out, but then Finnegan did the job, got out of the inning, and then a real quiet one, two, three, ninth, and that's what you want from a closer. You want no drama. You don't want the guy... Much as we love Chad Cordero, he joked about when we talked to him how he had a pension for loading the bases and then getting his way out of it. Ideally, you want this. One, two, three. Don't make anything out of it. Don't give him a sniff of anything. So that was good. And, you know, more and more we're seeing a body of work from Kyle Finnegan that says whether it's as a closer, whether it's at a late inning, you know, setup role, he does seem to have both the stuff and the mindset to handle high leverage spots. Is he ultimately a closer on a championship team? I don't know. But he deserves to be in the mix in the 7th, 8th, and ninth innings. And I think more than anybody else, at least, who's still around at this point, they've all had their moments, but he's had the most consistent moments and the fewest blow-ups. And that's a nice thing to see because they need some building blocks there. There's a lot of work to be done in their bullpen, but Finnegan at least is one piece that you can start with and something to build off of as you try to put together you know, a real quality bullpen for next year. Yeah, I mean, all these relievers in the Nationals bullpen right now have talent to varying degrees. I don't know, though, who else you would say comes close to having been as consistent as Kyle Finnegan has been since the sell-off. Like, I don't even know that there's another candidate for that. Like, he's the guy who's come the closest to being very consistent. I don't I don't know that I'd say he has been very consistent, but he's been pretty good. He's done a pretty good job overall, and by far, he's the most trustworthy of these relievers, and he does a nice job on Sunday afternoon. Well, we've been noting it. The Nationals offense has been really good lately, and Sunday afternoon, no exception. The Nationals put up six runs in this 6-2 win at the Pirates. Juan Soto gets on base four times for a second consecutive game. He has a triple, a double, and two walks. Juan Soto in the top of the first draws a two-out six-pitch walk, despite having been down to the count at 1.02. He in the top of the fifth draws a leadoff four-pitch walk, He in the Nats' one-run seventh has a leadoff triple on a 1-2 pitch, I guess because it had been a while since he'd hit a triple, so he decided to do that. And then in the top of the ninth, a one-out double. So four times on base, five total bases in the game. 
Juan Soto in the series goes six for 11 with a triple, a double, four singles, and three walks. He gets on base nine times over the three games. That's not easy to do. That's not something that you see happen often. I don't care who you're playing. And he now has that major league leading on base percentage up to 457 on the year. It was a thing when he crossed over into that 450 territory. Who knows where this OBP is going to wind up at the end of this season? Even with the sell-off, even with the fear of a lack of protection, the on-base percentage keeps going up. And it's not just walks. He's piling up hits here lately. He is a superstar, Al. You know, he is a superstar who does it all. You know who else is a superstar? Max Scherzer. As we're recording this, Max just recorded his 3,000th career strikeout, getting Eric Hosmer. And oh, by the way, as we're recording this, he has a perfect game through five innings against the Padres. Scherzer, three balls, two strikes. Hosmer, the hitter. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed strike three. 3,000 strikeouts for Max Scherzer, becoming the 19th pitcher in Major League history to enter that very exclusive club. A standing ovation inside Dodger Stadium. Max Scherzer into the history books. Now, by the time you all listen to this in the morning, you'll know whether he finished it off or not. We're not going to be on the air long enough to know that. But had to just mention that, and I know it's bittersweet for Nationals fans to see him have that kind of success in the Dodgers uniform. But as someone who's gotten to know him over the last seven years, pretty cool to see him reach a, a big milestone for pitchers. Speaking of milestones, Juan Soto is going to be a guy who's going to set a lot of milestones before this is all said and done. He has now reached base four times in 19 games this year. That's insane how much he does that. Big games. And this one almost felt like a little bit of a ho-hum one. Two walks and then a triple and a double, and it didn't even feel like a, some kind of superstar performance. It was just kind of a run-of-the-mill game for him. This is who he is. Every at-bat is quality. He doesn't give away at-bats. Obviously, we know he comes through in the clutch, as we've seen from him over the years, but even on a day when it's a pretty comfortable game and he didn't necessarily have a huge impact in them winning this game, and he still gets on base four times. That's how good he is. It's how he can beat you in so many different ways, and we're not there yet, but He's putting himself into the MVP conversation with what he's doing. Maybe he's going to be hurt by the team's performance and the fact that the narrative for the first half of the year was that he was having a down year. But at the end, when you look at the numbers and compare them to Bryce Harper and some others, I think he's going to be right there if he keeps this up. Certainly, he goes down as one of the best offensive players in baseball this season. The defense has been good. You know, you could maybe argue, well, it hasn't been great enough to where he's like right up there with the best in the majors in terms of like overall value, but it's going to get votes. That's for darn sure. And if he keeps this up, he may get more than just a few votes, you know, like more than just a few token votes for sure. You know, the standard by which all Nationals position player seasons are judged, right, is that Bryce Harper 2015. Bryce's on-base percentage for that MVP 2015 season was 460. Juan's on-base percentage now this season is at 457. So in that regard, Juan is essentially equaling what Harper did in that all-world 2015, just to kind of highlight the season that Juan Soto is having. It's remarkable what he does, and that's that's some stat. 19 times in a season, you get on base four times in a game. That's crazy. Like, most guys would kill to do that, what, two or three times in a season. Homie's done it 19 times, and we still got a few weeks left in this season. Josh Bell continues to get on base game in, game out multiple times, does it again on Sunday afternoon, doesn't have a hit, but he has two more walks. I have to tell you, I'm fascinated by this, how Josh Bell, for so much of this season, was like never drawing walks. And now all of a sudden, he's like Joey Votto. Like every game, he's drawing at least a walk, maybe two. He ends up drawing five walks over the three games in this series. He also, of course, had the big home run in the 4-3 walk-off loss at the Pirates on Friday night. Has Josh talked about this at all? Like the plate selection? Why all of a sudden he's piling up all these walks? Yeah, he feels like he's been better at not chasing pitches. That's among the reasons that he's been so good with two strikes that we've seen from him this year because he is not chasing pitches out of his own. He's had better discipline. I know he's worked a lot with Kevin Long on a variety of things. You know, he's still got the long swing, but it's maybe not quite as long as we saw early on spring training in April when things were so bad for him. So I think he's gotten uh, you know more into his legs and been able to get to more balls. But the pitch selection has been outstanding. And the reason I think that 
when he does hit the ball, he's hitting it so well, is that he's hitting good pitches to hit and not hitting pitchers' pitches. So that's been a really nice sign. We keep talking about it over and over, but I think you really have to acknowledge that he's having a good year. That I know the first six weeks were awful, but what he's been able to do since then has more than erased that, I think. And while the total numbers are a little less than you would ideally like, they're still very solid all across the board. And he's still got three weeks to go and can add to it. And I think at the end of the day, we're going to say that Josh Bell had a good season for them, so much so that he really feels like he is going to be an important part of this next year and potentially beyond, depending on how it all shakes out. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I remember we discussed when Josh was struggling was that, well, he was hitting balls hard. And I know that people get sick of hearing that because eventually you're like, I don't care about how hard you're hitting the baseball. Like, I want to see results. But the reason we focus on stuff like that is because those process stats do matter because they tell you, like, is he just totally lost or is he actually doing some things well? And he was doing some things well. And this is one of the good things about baseball. The season is so long that if you're doing things well, eventually the results are going to bear that out. It's hard to fluke it for six months. You can fluke it in a good way or a bad way for a month, maybe two. But like over the course of 162 games, it's hard to fake it, man. Like that old Bill Parcells thing in football of you are what your record says you are. I don't think that's true in football. It's only a 16, now 17 game season. Baseball though, 162, you are what your record says. It's hard to fake it, right? And I think it's the same thing with like personal statistics in baseball. It's hard to fake it over six months. And so as time has gone on, Josh Bell's result stats have come to reflect the process numbers. And that's good. He deserves it. He's, he's done a good job in that regard and getting on base like crazy here lately. So very good to see that. Another guy who continues to hit, and this is another person who like every game we have to note, but Lane Thomas, the Lane train coming through with a big three-run homer in this game on Sunday afternoon. And the Nats four-run fourth, a two-out, three-run opposite field homer to right field for a 5-2 Nats lead. Now, if this is like most other Nationals games this season, and certainly lately, that home run does not hold up in terms of giving the Nationals that 5-2 lead, but that turned out to be exactly what the Nats needed. It's Lane Thomas's only time getting on base in this game, but obviously a huge hit, and the Nats are able to maintain holding that edge on the Pirates. So I think probably the most exciting thing about Thomas here, I mean, it's not shocking that he has done well, I guess, as much as you want to think so. Like the guy has some skill, but it's the power. I don't know that anybody really saw that coming, especially in this case, powered the opposite field. That one was the right center field. So he's now in 26 games slugging 537. That's better than Juan Soto's slugging percentage for the year, which is 528. Better than Trey Turner's was with the Nationals, 521. Kyle Schwarber was at 570 during his time with the Nats based off of one month, essentially. So, I mean, those are the people we're talking about in comparison. Now, it's only about 100 plate appearances, so let's not go crazy. But as we keep saying, each passing day, it's a bigger body of work. And you say, okay, there may be something here to work with. And so even though he's a leadoff speed guy, contact guy, you would think, the fact that he does have some power in there too, I think is just an added bonus to what has already been an absolute bonus for them. This is, this is the cherry on top of a Sunday that nobody ever expected to be getting here uh, for the final two months of the season. Yeah, he's gotten on base in every game in the month of September. I noted this on the last installment of the podcast. He's been remarkably consistent. He hasn't had more than like, I don't know, maybe two consecutive games in which he doesn't get on base. Like every game he does something. Every game there's something to note with Lane Thomas, which I think is always better than the guy who goes on some torrid run and then he does nothing for a few weeks. You know, like you rather have someone you can count on. And Lane Thomas, at least in, again, this small sample size, has been someone who the Nationals have been able to count on. Another guy who is emerging in the power department is Luis Garcia. This is pretty surprising. Of all the things that have happened over the last few weeks with the Nationals, the rise in power of Luis Garcia might be the most surprising. Into the first row over the seats in right center field, a youngster brought his glove and made the catch of Luis Garcia's fifth home run of the year, RBI number 11. Uh, he's had all these doubles, as we've noted. He's done a lot of his damage in the latter innings of games. But on Sunday afternoon, in the top of the second inning, Luis Garcia, a leadoff homer to right center field for a one nothing Nationals lead. The home run going a projected 401 feet for Stadcast. It was a mixed series for Luis Garcia. Truth be told, he didn't do much at the plate beyond this home run. But he hits that home run. It's a 400-plus foot home run. And it's another extra base hit for Luis Garcia over these last few weeks. 
It's nine extra base hits in his last 11 games. So yes, that's a good thing. We talk all the time about the flash that he provides. He has that and he's showing that more consistently now. And I could tell from talking to him after the game that this power surge, like it means something to him. And he thinks it's something he's worked on. It's it's something he's developed over time. It's not necessarily who he's always been, but he thinks it can be a part of his game moving forward. And it's going to help make him a much more complete hitter than perhaps we've seen from him so far. The ability to do that, to hit for power, the doubles obviously are, are going to be important for him hitting gap to gap. But if he can take advantage of bad pitches and hit him out of the park like he did with this one, it's just going to make him more valuable. And the style is there. It's just the substance now. Day in and day out, can he do it for them? But I think after what we had seen, you know, the first month or so after the trade deadline, we were maybe a little discouraged by it. I would say there's been a lot more encouraging signs in the last couple of weeks from Luis, mostly at the plate, a little bit in the field. He's still erratic and he's got to clean some things up. But at the plate, I think there's definitely been some things that we didn't necessarily see before and and can look at and say, okay, we see where this is. We see what he can be if he can continue this. When it comes to Garcia and Kiboom, do you view one right now as being more likely than the other to make it to end up being what the Nationals want him to be? Or are both kind of in the same bucket of you see reason for optimism, but you still haven't seen enough production to buy fully into the player? Yeah, I would say we've seen more of Kiboom at this point. There's a, a larger body of work, and so that makes his struggles maybe a little bit more concerning. Whereas Garcia, we still haven't seen a whole lot, and he's a couple years younger than him. He's still really young. Now, that said, Kiboom was higher touted coming into all this than Garcia was. And so in theory, that means Kiboom has a higher ceiling, although we just haven't really seen it as much. I would say that of the two, Kiboom needs a strong finish more than Garcia does. I think even if Garcia struggles somewhat the rest of the way, You'd still say, well, he's 21 and we haven't really gotten a good look at him yet. There's still time for him to develop. If Kibum were to fall off a cliff here the rest of the way, that could put some serious doubts in your mind about what he's going to be long term. Now, I think he's been better. I think especially in the field, he's become more consistent. Kibum has at third base and he is starting to deliver hits in big moments. You know, he's still not dominating at the plate or anything like that, but he has refined it to where he's at least delivering in some bigger spots. So I think that helps. I don't think either one's a lost cause at this point. But I would say at the moment, there's probably more pressure on Kiboom than on Garcia, just because he's been up a little bit longer and he's a few years older. And so in theory, he should be more advanced and producing more now than Garcia would be expected to. Yeah, with Garcia, there's all this skill, right, and obvious athleticism. And it's just like if you can harness that in the right direction, you really could have something there because he's got all the ability you could ever ask for. And he seems to have that kind of like requisite cockiness slash confidence. It's just a matter of being consistent, being focused, hitting for power on a more consistent basis as well. But I had concerns about Luis Garcia. I was like, I don't know if this guy's an everyday player. I can't say I'm positive, but certainly you're feeling better about that now. Like you're starting to see, okay, like maybe this guy can be your everyday second baseman for multiple seasons to come. That chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park and make sure you stop by Silver Branch located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Hey Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer, play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. 
Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Yordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington National Stars today. Visit FredNats.com for ticket information and follow us on social media at FXBGNats for the latest updates. No idea where to play him. This could hit it anywhere. Pitch swung on, line to left. Alford is toward the line. He's on the run. Can't get it. It bounces over the wall and out of play. It is a fair ball and an automatic double for Soto. Now the card wasn't right. They had him shaded the other way, but they didn't have him over on the left field line. As Soto has a laugh with former teammate Wilmer Defoe. Breaking ball hung. It was running away. Soto goes with it beautifully. His 17th double of the year. Two extra base hits, two walks. All in a day for Juan Soto. A privilege for us to watch him play every day. You can always email us at the Nats Chat Podcast, Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. Well, with Juan Soto just killing it right now, we got this email from Josh Silver. Uh, so we've been asking for predictions for 2022. Josh's prediction is as follows Juan Soto signs an extension, which is essentially six years, $210 million with multiple opt outs after that. I would think any extension you sign Soto to is going to have to start with a three, maybe even a four. Is there a way to do a Soto extension with a two? I would think not, but you tell me. Well, is he saying that there's six and two, ten, or six and whatever for 200, but that's like just up to the point of the opt-out, and then there are more years after that? Or is he saying it's a six-year deal with opt-outs prior to that? Because that's not going to get it done. It's going to have to be a lot more years than that and a lot more total money. Now, that average value, that's what, th- over $35 million or something like that. So that could maybe get it done, but to me, it would have to be a lot more years. I could certainly see like a 13-year deal that has an opt-out after six. That's a possibility to be sure. But the total number of that one would be in the 400 millions because now it's like 210 times two because twice as long. If nothing else, any deal that could potentially happen before it becomes a free agent is going to have to be creative. It's going to have to have things like opt-outs in it. It's, um, you know, I'll be curious, is it front-loaded? Is it back-loaded? Are the Nats still going to insist on deferred money? And is that going to be a sticking point ultimately for him? So, I mean, it it's not just going to be a simple, okay, here you go. It's uh, 13 for 450, take it or leave it. Like, it's going to be much more complicated than that. But what that proposal was there, I don't think that gets it done because, you know, the only thing would be you could pay him a ton of money on a short-term deal and just essentially say, okay, you can become a free agent again at age 29 or something like that. That might be appealing, but the money you'd have to give him up front would be astronomical, way more than the 210 to entice him to do that and take the chance of becoming a free agent again before he hits 30. I think the best route would be to do the Tatis thing because he's young enough to where you can give him double digit years and it could still end up working out. But if he was open to that, I don't think that would be so terrible. If you gave him a ton of money on a shorter term deal, like say $40 million a year, even more than that. And you made it so that it was almost like too good to be true because he is still facing arbitration for a few years. So you can he can make a lot more money via an extension for at least these next few years. And then what you have to do is really make it enticing enough to pass up on free agency for a few years. That's always going to be the biggest hurdle, right, is getting him to put off going into free agency, getting Boris to put that off. We know Boris hates to do that. And while there's no predicting where the free agency market is going, it still seems robust enough to where a guy like Soto, even if things decline, is almost going to be immune to that. Like, there's going to be, I mean, I know we did say the same stuff about Bryce Harper and Manny Machado and they got humbled, so you never know. But it feels like Soto can be that guy who can disregard where MLB is at in terms of, you know, finances off the pandemic or anything like that. Like, he's going to be great. He's going to get paid. And chances are, if he wants to maximize his value, going into free agency is the means by which to do that. Yeah, he is a generational player who is doing this at an extremely young age and is going to have the ability to be a free agent at an extremely young age. And so that puts him into a very small category of players who do that. Now, Bryce was in that category. And as we've talked about, it wound up not quite being the extravaganza that he or everyone thought it would be when he became a free agent. So 
maybe there's a little bit of a lesson in there for Soto to say, at the end of this year, his value may never be higher because of what he's now done in consecutive years. And you're always taking the chance of, well, maybe he has a down year at some point and that hurts it. That said, to get it to happen now, it's going to take something extraordinary that he cannot refuse, especially because of the situation the team is in at this point. If they make him a big time offer and he were to take it, that's also him putting a whole lot of faith into a Nationals team that he doesn't know when they're going to win again. He can hope, but he doesn't know for a fact. So it's, it, that makes it extra difficult, I think, to get it done before he hits free agency. And that's why I keep saying all along that maybe the most important thing to ensure that Juan Soto stays a National forever is that the team is a contender or at least looks like it's going to be a contender before he can become a free agent again. So that he sees tangible evidence on the field of this is the team that I want to still be with because I see that we are going to win now in the very near future. Yeah, and I think that's such a tricky part of where the Nats are at because they have them under team control for three more years. So if they embark on some longer term rebuild, what are you going to waste these final three years of team control? And and you're just going to be like, yeah, we're not going to be very good for a few years. And then by the time we start to get good, we may be losing Juan Soto. Like, that wouldn't make any sense. The Nats are almost in a position where they have to try to be good again sooner rather than later. Otherwise, you end up wasting potentially this generational player. I mean, they may want to resign him. He may not want to stay. We have no idea. So, I mean, imagine that. They rebuild for three years. They're on the cusp of getting good. And then Soto leaves them in free agency. That would be like the worst way for this to play out. So it's almost like you have to try to retool this offseason and get good again and just kind of see where that takes you. It's, it's a fascinating thing. The Nationals are in such a unique position. This is not that standard thing of a team got old and now they just got to blow it all up and start all over again. The team got old and got bad, but they have this like glorious piece, this glorious centerpiece. And that is so rare. Like you don't see that. Teams that get bad, like the Orioles, the Pirates, the Tigers, they, they don't normally have somebody like this. The Nats have a great young player. They have like the one thing that every team that starts a rebuild is seeking. The Nats already have that. They have the hardest thing to find. It's hard to remember many other baseball teams being in this exact predicament. Yeah, and that's why they really have to avoid the worst case scenario. What the worst case scenario is, is that two years from now, they are still a really bad team that is on the verge of 100 losses. And Soto is a year and a half away from free agency. And Mike Rizzo has to do what he did with Trey Turner and say, we have to trade you because we're not going to win and we can't risk losing you and getting nothing in return. That's the worst case scenario. And so that's why maybe not in 2022, but by 23, you have to see signs of progress that makes you believe and makes him believe that this team is going to be good again before he can leave. Because otherwise, you're putting yourself in the exact same position you were in this summer. And that's not a position they want to be in again anytime soon. Yeah. And and the truth is this, if the Nationals were to be insistent on doing a total teardown rebuild, then the thing to do might be to trade Juan Soto within the next year or so. And nobody wants to see that happen. But like if the Nats for some reason were like dead set on, no, we got to tear this whole thing down and rebuild, you know, from the, from the base, you really would have to say to yourself, all right, well then you better be willing to trade Juan Soto within the next year or so. And again, Nobody wants to see that happen. Well, you tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can always email us NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And right now we leave you with our latest voice memo. You can always uh, send us your thoughts, your predictions for 2022, as well as a World Series memory. Today we have a 2019 World Series memory. comes to us from Jonathan Klein-Evans of Gaithersburg, Maryland. Hi, Mark and Al. This is Jonathan from Gaithersburg. Thanks for doing such a great job with the Nats Chat Podcast. It's usually difficult to find good coverage of the Nats on the radio, even when they are contenders, and it's even harder this year. And your analysis is both insightful and entertaining. I was fortunate enough to attend all of the home postseason games at Nats Park in 2019, as well as several others in prior years. And while I've been frustrated by the subdued nature of Nats fans during certain regular season moments, I've always been impressed with how raucous and supportive the postseason crowds have been. But the game that really stands out for me was the 2019 wildcard game. I don't know if it was because of the fact that it was a single elimination game, but prior to opening pitch, 
there seemed to be an unusual energy in the crowd that was both intense and suppressed, like a simmering pot of water not quite able to boil. Our eyes were all over the players warming up, but there was nothing to focus on to express our excitement. It's not the way of baseball for players to interact much with the crowd or show any emotion while getting ready. But then came the ceremonial first pitch, and the bear, Aaron Barrett, was introduced. That drew a huge applause because of how great his personal comeback story was and how it reflected the Nats' resurrection during the season. Now, usually, the person throwing out the first pitch just goes right out to the mound, maybe waves once or twice, and then just throws the pitch. But the bear took a different approach. Seeming to sense that the crowd was looking for an antenna to capture our energy waves, he took a turn off the route to the mound and started walking around it, looking out at the crowd in different directions while waving his arms and holding his hand to his ear to egg us on. The place went wild. The simmering pot of water exploded into a roaring boil. As he led us in rhythmic clapping from the mound before the pitch, it was clear that he, representing the team, and we, the fans, were all sharing in the joy and celebration of having made it to the postseason. And that seemed to catalyze a frenzy that was sustained throughout the entire game, including through the early Brewers home runs, which caused only momentary letdowns, and finally culminating in the crescendo, the Soto hit in the bottom of the eighth, where the bedlam lasted through the entire inning break and then through the top of the ninth. As intense as the crowds were throughout the rest of the games, I feel the wildcard game was the peak experience. And I think Aaron Barrett deserves some credit for his inspiring role. Here's the set of the pitch. Swing and a fly ball, shallow left center field. Robles coming over, calling, and he makes the catch. The side retired. Aaron Barrett smacks his hand in his glove, and Gomes coming over to shake his hand as he walks off toward the Nationals dugout on the third base side. You know what, Dave? I, I think, think he's, he's a little... I think he's come to tears. Yep. I think there are tears flowing as he walks off the field with a scoreless inning. And high fives from all of his Nationals teammates. If that doesn't get you, nothing will. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.